Okay, well, this evening, um, primarily what I want to talk about is, is the self. Um, I think it's been held out as a promissory note for long enough uh, to talk about this uh, seemingly receding, difficult object to get hold of called the self. I want to spend a few minutes, though, um, as a preliminary leading into this. Um, talking about, you know, sort of connecting with what we've already talked about the previous evening, about our notions of greed, aversion, delusion, craving, all of these things. And don't look so depressed, I'll try and make it a little bit lighter <laughs> as we go through. To try and connect it to those, you know, those very ways that we find ourselves in the world, because... In a way, it is the self which craves, it's the self which is deluded, it's the self which is, is aversive as well. So, you know, when we start talking about the notion of the self, it's involved in all of these things. I think I just want to set the ground by reading you a quote to start off with. A quote from the Buddha. It's out of the Sangyutta Nikaya which is uh, Connected Discourses. It's a huge tome of two massive volumes. Um, and the Buddha says this. This is a bit of a... I've kind of edited it a little bit because it's a rather long, but uh, I've got an edited version here. He who imagines is bound by Mara. Mara being this playful, devil-like figure that you get in Buddhist thought, which is actually nothing other than your own mind. Enough of commentary. I'll get on with the quote. He who does not imagine is freed from that evil one. I am. This is an imagining. I shall not be. This is an imagining. This I am. That is an imagining. I shall be. This is an imagining. I shall not be. This is an imagining. Embodied shall I be, formless shall I be, I shall be conscious, I shall be unconscious, neither conscious or unconscious shall I be. This imagining is a disease. Imagining is an abscess. Imagining is a barb. I am is an agitation. I am is a palpitation. I am is a delirium. And finally, I am is a conceit. Do you think he's got a problem? <laughs> In a way, that sets out some of the issues that the Buddha has, something that arises out of this notion of self. Now, I want to step back from that a little and go a little bit into what we've been engaging in in the course of the week so far. We've been looking, and seemingly some of you perhaps have been getting thinking, why on earth are we looking at this Vedana? Why are we looking at these feeling tones that are arising? And I think I tried to give you a bit of a rationale as why we look at feeling tones. Why we're looking at feeling tones is because they can become the trigger for something else. In fact, the feeling tones themselves, as has been said on a number of occasions, are actually impersonal. There is no I attached to them. Having said that, we can almost create an eye out of anything, including just um, touching something. That's me! <laughs> you know, I can discover me virtually everywhere. 
as I discovered, a, a, as I encountered a, a little saying that apparently goes around New York, which is something like, that's enough about me. What do you think about me? <laughs> yeah, so we can't sort of evade this me, this I. <laughs> yeah, so what the, the Buddha is really trying to trace is the development of this I concept. And in a way, it all starts, strangely enough, with constantly being bombarded with feeling tones again and again and again. We are sensory embodied beings. There is no doubt about that. We've gone into this in instructions and we've gone into this a little bit in talks. We are embodied beings who are in contact because we have sense organs. We're in contact constantly with the world. Even if I was putting into a sensory deprivation chamber, I would still be contacting something. And that would be just the thoughts that I'm having. You know, remember that as in Buddhism, in Buddhist psychology, there is not just the five usual senses, there are actually six senses, which is the mind is considered to be another sense organ. And what it contacts is images and thoughts and emotions and everything else, just like the eye contacts the visual just like the ear contacts the audible. This is what the mind does. So we're constantly, constantly contacting something. We cannot not contact stuff. Out of that contact arises feeling tones. I'm not going to go into the Pali technical terms, but basically we get these range of tones that we've been looking at just in ordinary experience, just in our walking practice, in our sitting practice. We get these feeling tones, which are termed Vedana, Actually, this is a huge part of our experience. Yeah, it's a huge part of our experience. In the Buddha's kind of description of our experience, which he lays out in five ways, Vedana is the second of these major ways in which we experience, actually, the notion of selfhood. Yeah? So it's a kind of building block for what we're going to call the self. So Vedana is the trigger, and what it triggers is actually tanha, this thing that Jenny described as thirst. The literal meaning of this word is thirst. That which I thirst for, that which I desire, that which I want. You know, a more usual translation is craving. It's two-faced. There's the craving for the things I want, and there's actually, strangely enough, the craving or the desire for the things I don't want. You know, I don't want certain things in my life. I desire not to have them. Equally, I desire to have certain things in my life. I want them. I want and don't want at the same time. So when we start speaking about this, it is... Janus faced. It looks in two directions, both wanting and not wanting continuously, which gives rise ultimately to that which we grasp after. Yeah. Now, this is all in Buddhist psychology traceable through a, a little technical chain of events, which is called dependent arising. Now, I'm not going to go into that. We'll just take, in fact, we do whole week's courses on it here. Um, so there's a lot of material in there. 
But this is the basic element. It gives a rising, it gives a rise to what is known as upadana, which is clinging or grasping. Now, I don't want to go into many of these words. It's not a place to go into much etymology, but this word upadana is actually a very interesting word in Pali. It was actually a term which was used in ancient India to describe ritual practice, uh, particularly the fueling of a ritual fire. You know, any of you know about anything about Hinduism, um, particularly Brahmanism, which is the ancient form of what we now call Hinduism, most ceremonies, most rites of passage, marriages and everything are conducted round a sacrificial fire which people walk and various mantras are intoned and things go on and various rituals are performed. I won't go into the detail. But the act of fueling that fire, the very act of fueling that fire was known as upadana. Yeah. It meant literally to fuel something, to fuel a material process. The Buddha uses this term. In a sense, he very cleverly manipulates his social situation, where he is, the language that's around him. Often a lot of what is mis has sort of lost meaning for us. We've even lost the metaphors in the contemporary world. And so he uses this word not to describe the literal physical fueling of a fire, literally putting the logs on the fire, but the ways that we fuel and this is where we contact what we were talking about the other night, the ways that we fuel greed, aversion, and delusion. Actually, again, the reference was that there were three sacrificial fires which had to be kept burning, and you kept fueling them. Yeah? This is what uh, was going on in Brahminical ritual. And the Buddha is using this as a metaphor for actually what we're doing in this very act of, and I'm going to use this as a dyad, the very act of wanting, desiring, and clinging to things, we're fueling the very process of greed, aversion, and delusion. This is what we do. In other words, if you want to keep your fires burning, keep grasping and desiring. Just keep on at it. You'll find that your fires will burn quite nicely. Yeah. And again, one another one of these lists, the Buddha speaks about what arises in this clinging are actually a number of different forms of clinging. Strangely enough, not, or not strangely enough, one of the forms of clinging is to the notion of self. This is what we cling to. We cling to the notion of the self. The Buddha speaks about the production of this self in many, many different ways. Without going into the historical context, there's a lot of discussion about what the self is in ancient India. Um, in the, the thought of the Upanishads, which was some of it was prevalent at the time of the Buddha, some of you might know this from yoga, because often the Gita and the Upanishads are spoken about in yoga uh, courses. In the early Upanishads, for example, the self is identified as an indestructible thing. It's literally that which is reincarnated, going on from rebirth to rebirth to rebirth. The Buddha's quarrel, in a sense, is with the idea of any fixity. 
any fixity whatsoever. Wouldn't it seem strange, you know, we're going all the talk that I went into the previous night, you know, and on, I went on and on and on. I probably witted on far too long about impermanence. But I went on and on and on about impermanence. And wouldn't it be rather strange of saying absolutely everything in the world is impermanent? Not me. Now, that doesn't sound so strange because we can adhere to a kind of intellectual understanding, sometimes even a little bit deeper than intellectual understanding, that the world is constantly in flux, it's constantly changing, it's evanescent, you know, it's, it's sort of froth-like a lot of the time, there's not a lot to grasp to. Uh, out of that quotation the other night that I gave you, that the Buddha was saying, there is literally no place we can be which has that safety and security in this world. However, even if we adhered to all of that, even if we took that all on board, there is still something deeply inside, isn't there? Often it's going, actually, not me. I'm not really like that. You know, I've got this exemption certificate that says I'm not changing and that I'm not going to die. <laughs> this is really what we're doing, dealing with. We're dealing with this intuitive, almost commonsensical idea that there is something unchanging within us that can be discovered. This is what the Buddha really is arguing against. Now, I just want to make this clear, and I want to get it back to practical terms. I think I said this very briefly in the previous talk, that the Buddha is not that interested in whether something exists or doesn't exist. So this common translation that you often find of there is no self, is it kind of almost people say, well, that, isn't that what Buddhists believe, that there is no self? You know, you all walked in here thinking you had a self, now you have a self-shaped hole <laughs> where it used to be. Now, this is nonsense. This is not what the Buddha is speaking about at all. You know, what he is trying to get us to see is the self as we almost commonsensically hold on to it in our almost intuitive understanding of who and what we are isn't quite right. It doesn't quite work in that way. You know, in actually, you know, kind of playing on that UK television series, we're not quite who we think we are. <laughs> you know? We don't actually exist in the ways that we think. We have to, have to get away from the idea there is some central controller. There used to be this little idea way back in the past of what's called the homunculus in the head. Have you come across this, anybody? Homunculus, by the way, means the little man in the head. It's a bit like the crane driver, you know, who sits up there in the head and he pulls your limbs. <laughs> you know, by just pulling the crane levers. This idea of the homunculus in the head, this central character who's controlling everything. Now... I just kind of put it to you, doesn't that, isn't that how it feels a lot of the time? That there is somebody driving this machine? <laughs> yeah. Doesn't it feel like that? Yeah, a lot of the time, that there is something or someone in there driving this machine? 
So hence these understandings that these early Upanishadic texts had, the early Hindus or Brahmins had, that there was some kind of centrality, um, some kind of unchanging existence to us all, which was within, isn't so wacky, isn't so far beyond belief. But the Buddha took issue with it. He took issue with the idea that if everything is impermanent, there is something permanent within us, as if we're somehow different from the rest of the universe. It's a very important point. It places us back in a very, I think, humble position, back into the universe, rather than being something rather special and different that can dominate what we find in the world. We are on the level of no other, of other phenomena in that we are changing, in that we are impermanent. However, coming back to this little chain of dependent arising, one of the forms that arises is what's called atavada, atavada atavad upadana, which actually means the clinging after the sense of self. We cling to that notion very, very strongly. Yeah, we hold on to that notion and it dominates much of our interaction. The self becomes a thing. Now the Buddha might have been one of the first to query the notion of the self. He certainly wasn't the last. There are many people in the Western world, and I'll just give you a few examples, who've also queried this notion that we are a fixed something. Yeah. I'll say something about this, why this is so important in Buddhist thought, why, you know, why we have such a lot of emphasis placed on, in a way, deconstructing the notion of this fixed self. But a lot of, a lot of you know, thinkers much, much later than the Buddha have queried the notion of the self, even up to kind of contemporary neuroscientists, uh, that there is one locus, for example, within the brain. Um, the short story writer Catherine Mansfield, some of you might know some of her work, you know, she wrote beautiful short stories, she's a friend of Virginia Woolf's, said she was very perplexed by this notion of being true to myself. She said, when I look inside myself, what I find myself is as a, as a concierge in a hotel of a hundred guests. Yeah. Um, the philosopher, the Austrian philosopher Wittgenstein once said he had the feeling that the self was merely a grammatical error. <laughs> David Hume, the Scottish philosopher, once said, you know, when I look inside myself for a self, I cannot find a self. All I find are bundles of perceptions. You know? kind of strung together in particular ways. So the Buddha may, may have been one of the first to query this notion of self. He's certainly not the last. And it's interesting to look at some of those little notions. You know. Self is often dependent on language. But have we ever thought about this? Have we ever really confronted the um, almost the, ling the linguistic isolation of the sense of self in, well, certainly in English. It doesn't work in many other languages, but in English it works very well. If at this point I had a whiteboard, I'd draw it on the board. The first person pronoun in English, I. My word, doesn't it look lonely? 
when you write it in English. A little stick-like thing written up there, I. But isn't it damn difficult to try and keep that I together <laughs> most of the time? Isn't it really difficult to try to keep it together as a coherent entity? Yeah. We, struggle in its, we struggle with our loneliness. That I seems to be often disconnected from others. Yeah. The I, in fact, doesn't really make any sense without the other. Yeah. The others who we encounter. Yeah. And the others which actually populate that seemingly singular I. Does that make sense? Yeah. That seemingly singular I that's so difficult in our ordinary day-to-day -day experience to get together. In other words, putting it very simply, isn't being a self and trying to be a self a rather tough business most of the time? Yeah. Trying to be someone yeah. in this world? To try and be a coherent entity? <laughs> so difficult just to try and string oneself together in a coherent way on a day-to-day -day basis. You know, usually you're not coherent much to the annoyance of the other person you're with. You know, you know, I thought you liked that. No, I don't. <laughs> you know, there's, there's all this change going on. Now, this is a rather kind of gentle way of trying to get you to see into the problem here. Let me go back just a second. The Buddha is not interested in whether there is a self or whether there is no self. Yeah. What he's interested in is how this entity which we call the self actually operates. How it actually is in the world. Yeah. He gives elements of experience which are certainly essential to our notion of being a self. He calls these khandhas or aggregates. Yeah. In fact, he calls them upadana aggregates, aggregates that we grasp after. Yeah. Aggregate just means lumped together, things that we put together. So one of those aggregates I've already referred to, which is Vedana. This is a huge level of our experience. It's going on constantly. Vedana is happening right now. Yeah? Even in response to my voice, to you sitting on the seat, you know, to the air around you, to the, all the contacts we're making, Vedana is absolutely happening right now. It's not a theoretical construct. Yeah? And this is intrinsic, that you are a feeling being, having feeling tones constantly, to any coherent notion that we might have of being a self. But in itself, it does not constitute a self. Yeah. Why is that? Because Vedana is unstable. Yeah. If we're looking for something which is self-contained, self-existent, unchanging, it hasn't got to depend on anything, and it's got to be stable, hasn't it? I don't know about how you, how you feel, but the one thing I certainly don't feel is particularly stable <laughs> a lot of the time. And certainly my Vedanas are changing continuously. I've only got to scan up and down my body to look at you know, the feeling that I had in my knee two minutes ago has changed. Yeah? That feeling tone is gone. It might have gone completely, 
in which I've, case I've now got this absence of pleasantness and unpleasantness, or it might have gone from pleasant to unpleasant. None of that was under my control. Not one element of it. And that's another defining factor for the Buddha of being a self. The self should be in control. Yeah. That self should be something which actually controls our destinies, our events in life. Yeah. And most of the time, the elements which constitute this putative self are not in control. <coughs> our body, here's another big element. In fact, it's the first of these khandhas. You know, actually, it's materiality, but let's just call it body for this, you know, for purpose of this evening. Our form, it's actually the word rupa, means form yeah, in Pali and Sanskrit. This form that we take, you know, everything that we encounter which is, has form within ourselves. Well, much to my regret, this form hasn't remained the same over the years. <laughs> again, I look in the mirror disappointingly each morning and it's changed yet again. <laughs> Sometimes perceptibly, sometimes almost imperceptibly, but it's certainly changed. This form hasn't remained the same. All I can say is if we're grasping after our form as we are, as being ourself, we're in for an awful lot of dukkha, <laughs> aren't we? Yeah, because we do not remain the same. That doesn't. And it's not under our control. We can do our best, we can live healthily, we can exercise continuously, but we're still going to get old. <laughs> we're still going to age. We might slow it down slightly, we might live to a healthier old age, but we're not going to stop the process. You know, we're kind of genetically programmed. Uh, we're a bit like kind of I don't know goods that they manufacture these days with a sort of obsolete state. <laughs> Human beings are a bit like that. They've got a gene in which actually tells them they've got to die at some point. <laughs> and so we have inbuilt obsolescence. Um, it might be one way of putting. It. So we're changing. So you know we we can't really look to the the notion of the body, the form that we take at this present moment, as being ourselves, it's changing. Another category is the category of perception that the Buddha talks about, hugely important, isn't it? I mean, all of these things are important, that, we're, that, I, that he isolates as being, you know, activities, aspects of our experience that we can focus in on and look at as even possible candidates for being a self here. Perception, well, our perception and discrimination, because it's, it's both faculties, our ability to perceive things and discriminate what we perceive, is hugely reliant on, for example, the learning of language. Language isn't much use without another faculty, which is memory, which is part of this. Yeah. And actually it's interesting that so much of our notion of what a self is, is dependent on memory. Yeah. Our ability to perceive ourselves as a continuous being through time. Yeah. Have you noticed that? That's what we do. You know, what makes me the same person is that I can remember stuff that I did at age 5, age 10, age 11, age 16, age 15, going to India the first time, you know, and so on and so forth, all the way up to my present time. I can remember bits. 
Can I remember it all? No, I can't remember what I did last week. <laughs> Most of the time. You know, memory is extremely partial, isn't it? Yet, then we know with degenerative brain diseases, one of the things that first drops out when memory starts to go is actually the sense of self, isn't it? It starts to drop away. It's quite terrifying. You know, when short-term memory and long-term memory start to fade, start to go away, it's a terrifying experience. Actually, that would be qualified being a no-self, a lot of that. You know, that awful experience of actually losing the sense of who I am altogether, you know, because my memory is gone. And this shows you, to a certain extent, how constitutive memory is in this process of being a self that the Buddha speaks about. Yeah. Absolutely vital, isn't it, to language, yeah, to the language we use. What's the purpose of having language to make our perceptual discriminations if I can't remember what the word means? <laughs> yeah. The whole point about language is it's dependent on memory. Yeah. And as we know, often we start off with a small linguistic base. As we, you know, as we grow up, it gets bigger. Often towards the end of people's lives, it starts to fade again. And I'm not talking about degenerative disease, I'm just talking about aging here, when our memories start to go and um, you know, things start to fall apart a bit more. So this whole notion of perception discrimination as being a candidate for self, again, is not under our control because it's part of, it's part of the same process of everything else, of, of aging, change, yeah, all of that flux of experience, you know, our perceptions are changing continuously. Yeah, I've only got to turn my head and my perception's changing. And my audibility, you know, the things I can hear audibly change every moment. What I can focus on changes. You know, some of that is under my control, a lot of it isn't. Because some sounds, some sights and that impinge themselves on us very strongly and we have no control over that. Yeah, so, this other candidate, which is called Sanya, by the way, um, the little nya bit at the end indicates any sense of knowing something. Yeah, the job of Sanya is to know. Yeah, it's to know things. Yeah, a little technical description of it is it marks objects so that they can be recognized. Yeah, that's part of what the perceptual process is. How do we mark them? We mark them through language. How does language operate? Well, language operates through memory. How is the self constructed? The self is often constructed through the basis of memory here. Yet that memory is so partial. Yeah. That memory is, is reconstructing selves continuously. The um, feminist novelist Jeanette Winderson wrote a wonderful book um, called Sexing the Cherry. I don't know if anybody has read it. Um, but she's, <laughs> uh, you know, she shows, in a sense, how what memory is like, because she starts off, I think, on the first page, and she says something like, I wake up in the morning and decide which childhood I had, the happy one or the unhappy one. <laughs> and that's depending on how you remember it, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, and the stories that you tell yourself about it. Yeah. So it's not factual, it's not giving us any real information. Then we have a whole host of things which are very difficult to translate, a word which is called sankhara, which is usually translated as formations, which are really dispositions in many senses. 
dispositional, um, dispositional traits which have been built up through activities of body, speech, and mind over the course of your history. Yeah. In, I'm not going to get into this because it's opening a whole different can of worms, but you know, actually what it is is the karma. It's the activity, the work, the action that forms us and continues to form us yeah, in terms of dispositions. Yeah. Now, most sankharas are pretty nondescript. They're not a problem at all. Let's get that very, very clear. Um, sankharas as these habits and dispositions are just things like whether I like tea or not. It's not a great problem in my life. My sankhara, which is directed towards getting angry and volatile every time something displeases me, is much more of a problem. Yeah? And those are the ones that, um, particularly in Buddhist thought and psychology, that we're working on. Yet they're considered to be, obviously, what constitutes part of ourselves. Traits and activities and dispositions of what we call self are often what delineates us, isn't it? That I like X as opposed to Y. That I choose this as opposed to that. These are traits, yet they change, don't they? I mean, Jenny was talking about olives, not liking olives, and then suddenly liking olives. Yeah. And that's what happens. You know, we change from childhood. We go from liking sweet things to perhaps not so much liking so sweeter things. Although sometimes I tend to think the amount of sugar that's put in stuff these days, well, that, perhaps that's not so true. But there is these changes that are going on, which are often, again, not under our control, and usually irritate people around us. <laughs> yeah. Yet this whole sense of dispositional activity is not a static thing. It's not as if your dispositions are set in place at year five, ten, whatever it is, and that's it. You're not going to change after that. Of course you do. Those are changed and modified by our interactions with the world, by our speech acts, by our thoughts, by the way we act with our bodies. This is constantly changing even our sense of who we are. Yeah. Actually, if we did a little list, I used to do this with some of my students, you know, um, you know, it's kind of, you know, when we talk about the self, you know, well, what do you think the self is? And it usually consists of a list of what I like and what I don't like. <laughs> yeah. That's the self. Yeah. I'm that sort of person. It kind of defines me here. Finally, uh, in this little list that the Buddha gives of the kind of candidates within our experience that we can focus in and look at that might be ourself, there is this big problematic one which is generally translated as consciousness. Yeah? Now again, I've got to connect this just slightly with ancient Indian thought because in India... At that time, certain thinkers, particularly those who were composing the Upanishads and that, conceived of this self as being pure consciousness. Now, I'm sure you must have even come across that because it's so popular these days, this notion of non-dual consciousness and all sorts of stuff about consciousness and you know, the consciousness of the universe and things like this. This is 
not how the Buddha spoke about consciousness whatsoever. He said he couldn't find a pure consciousness. Yeah. Consciousness, in fact, was constantly changing. Yeah. Consciousness was dependent on objects yeah. in our experience. It wasn't as if there's a consciousness just lurking around, just waiting for something to pop up. Yeah. For me to be conscious of, the world and consciousness arose together. Yeah. This was, in using philosophical terminology, was what's called the intentionality of consciousness. The object and the consciousness rose together in the world. Yeah. This wasn't actually spoken about in Western thought until the 19th century. Yeah. This whole notion um, and the founding of, of a particular discipline called phenomenology. So this came about much, much, much later in Western thought, the idea that you know, objects and consciousness are interdependent. Yeah. They're not somehow separate. There isn't a consciousness which is detachable you know, from our percept perceptual activities. In Buddhist psychology, so much so that, um, you know, certain, I don't know how, who counted, but they get up to sort of 121 different forms of consciousness, you know, which are fluctuating moment to moment. Yeah. Different forms of consciousness. And I think it's just a big number to give you an idea there's a lot going on. Yeah. Yet we think somehow also of consciousness as being a good candidate, don't we, for ourselves. You know, somehow it, this might be the unchanging thing within us. And the Buddha is saying if we start to actually look at our experience very carefully, we start to see there is nothing really fixed within that consciousness. You know? The consciousness is just simply arising and passing away and arising and passing away. And what gives the impression of it being somehow thing-like is it's happening so fast. It's happening so fast. Part of what we do in meditation is start to slow down that process to begin to perceive a little of that speed with which the mind is working. You could, using an analogy, but don't push it too far, it's a bit like using an old cinema projector. You know, what gives the illusion of something happening continuously you know, is that it, you put frames single frames at a very high speed through a projector, doesn't it? It gives you the illusion of movement, it gives you the illusion of continuity, it gives you the illusion of something which sometimes can even be static here. And this is exactly what is happening with consciousness when we begin to look at it closely. So out of these candidates for self, none happens to be terribly appealing, does it? These five candidates for being ourselves, which we can grasp after, and I gave you one example. If we grasp after the the body as being ourself, well, we're in for <laughs> we're in for a lot of dukkha. If we grasp after these all these other dimensions of our experience, then they vary obviously accordingly to which ones they are. But it's a bit like grasping water. Trying to grasp after consciousness. Whoops, there it goes. Try another one. Yeah. I'm trying to grasp after something which is ungraspable. I get a lot of dukkha out of that as well. Yet we try to cling to this notion of 
the self. So that's a little bit about just the, the technicalities behind it. So the Buddha is really trying to show that actually this is somehow the self works in dependence on these factors, none of which independently are self. Even self imposed on all of those categories does not constitute any fixed notion of a self. Everybody with me so far? Yeah? Yeah, it's a little bit more difficult than the other night. <laughs> but I don't want to lose you at this stage um, because I want to get into the practical bits about this at this stage. So if we're trying to grasp after that, this is what we're trying to do. Have you ever noticed trying to grasp after yourself is a bit like that Catherine Mansfield quote, we discover lots of selves, multiple selves, you know, within this one self. When we discover, try to find the nature of our mind, we discover multiple minds, yeah? multiple forms of consciousness. We don't find something which is fixed. We don't find something which is static. We don't find something which is the same from moment to moment to moment. Yeah? Yet, the illusion, coming right back to where we started, the illusion is that we are after that one thing. We almost glorify it, we reify it, we make it into a search even. And the classic kind of search, and certainly in my day when I first went off to India, was people went to India looking for their real selves. <laughs> what on earth was that? <laughs> This real self. In fact, I saw a wonderful card once and I sent it to a friend of mine who had exactly the same name as the person on the card, which was a man climbing a mountain in the Himalaya with he's got his rucksack on his back and he's got a pair of glasses on and he's got his trainers and jeans on and he's climbing the mountain to discover his real self. And at the top of the mountain is a man standing who looks exactly like him with a pinstripe suit and a briefcase. And it said, Stanley went to the Himalaya to discover his real self. <laughs> so we're looking for this notion of the self, you know, trying to be. I mean, the common, it's a very common utterance, isn't it? Trying to be true to ourselves, whatever that might be. Now for the Buddha, this is an illusion, we are trying to grasp after. He calls it a conjurer's trick, the notion of the self. A conjurer's trick. Not that it does not exist, but it doesn't exist in the way that you think it exists. How do we think it exists? Well, it comes back to those ideas of something singular, something continuous, something unchanging, that's somehow embedded within us. Not so greatly far, although I was joking about it slightly, not so far from that idea of the, the crane driver, you know, the one who's driving all of our perceptions, all of our volitions, all of our cognitive faculties, that driver, the unchanging phenomena within. The Buddha is saying that is not how we exist. And if it is, it would be actually something that would be much to our detriment. Much to our detriment. It would cause us great suffering because it means, actually, that the kind of change that we're trying to affect through meditation, through cultivation, through the development of ethics, through the Buddhist path would actually be impossible. 
Yeah. Can you see that? If we had something which was fixed, unchanging, within ourselves, which was our self, and that self happened to be a bad self. Let's give, a bad, let's give it the, the bad press. It was a bad self. Yeah. But really, deep down within, actually, this is just bad. <laughs> there. Then, well, you know, actually, it would be impossible to change it. That was you. Yeah, you tinker around with the peripheries. You might make a, a little bit, you know, uh, this smiley bad self. But it becomes still the bad self when you're really trying to discover it. There would be no way of really changing that fundamental essence of you. And that would be actually an intrinsic form of essentialism. You are essentially this type of person. Isn't that what we do, actually, even in common speech? I was saying to a group today, isn't this one of the things that we do? Um, sometimes we go, aren't you that sort of person? Yeah. Or people come up to us, which is even more horrifying, and say, you're that kind of person, aren't you? You're a calm person. No, I'm not! <laughs> the other aspect of this that's linked to it is not only the way others see us, but the way that we see ourselves. This is actually another dimension of the notion of self, which is a sense of identity. Yeah. We are, you know, in the crude form, we are the identical thing passing through time. Yeah. If that's my bad self, I'm the identical bad self that passes through time, from birth to my death. It's kind of blueprint, stamp, bad person, still there at the end. Yeah. That's the bit that gets cremated. Yeah. The bad self. I think it's a very depressing view. I don't, you know, we talk about a lot, as you know, in Buddhist psychology, Buddhist thought. As I said the other night, you know, this is not to depress you. This is actually a diagnosis. We talk a lot about dukkha. We talk a lot about the causes of dukkha, what sustains it. And this is one of the major forms that causes dukkha. Yeah. This is one of the major dimensions of our experience that causes dukkha. This searching for identity. This grasping after something that we aren't. Again, coming back to that metaphor I used of trying to grasp water, trying to grasp ourselves, is a bit like that. Because it's changed by the time we come to go and grasp it. As the um, psychoanalyst Jacques Lacan once said, you know, he said that the, the self is always something other. It's always receding our grasp after it. We're always looking for that thing which is us, and it's somehow ungraspable. And the Buddha's kind of message to this is be the change that you already are, and make that change go in the direction of that which is wholesome not in the direction of that which is unwholesome. And the only reason that we can possibly do that is because you're not a thing. That is the good news. You're not a thing. If I had more time, I would go into a lot more depth about this, which is one of the great illusions is when we operate from the sense of the self, what we probably call in the West, there's no word for it in Pali, but what we probably call in the self more of the sense of ego, when we operate from that sense of ego as the subject, I manipulate others as objects. 
if I view myself as an object amongst other objects. Yeah? That's why it becomes so easy to manipulate others. Yeah. The self becomes the dominating factor. This is why in that quotation that I gave you, you know, the Buddha is saying the self is an agitation. Have you known a relaxed self? Mostly not. We're always striving to be something, aren't we? To be, to have that sense of identity, to discover. You know, I joked about it, but actually for many people it's still a very real movement to want to discover their true selves, whatever that true self is. It's agitated. It can't rest. There's no relaxation. Yeah? It's damn difficult, as I said, you know, keeping that, even that sense of self we have as an identity often together in ordinary life. You know, as, a, as a kind of result of that also, it's, you know, he uses this word palpitation. You know, it's, it's like a having, it's, it's anxiety-provoking too, isn't it? You know, so much of the anxiety that people suffer from centers around who am I, what am I, what is my place in the world, have I lost myself? Yeah. Where did I put it? <laughs> yeah. I could almost paraphrase Oscar Wilde here, probably some of you know Oscar Wilde's little quotation about losing, losing one parent was a tragedy, losing two was simply carelessness. <laughs> You know, because losing oneself could be a tragedy. Losing two of them could be a tragedy here or two. But you know, coming back to this notion, you know, losing myself, what could that possibly mean? Uh, in a way, the Buddha is actually questioning all of our so-called common sense attitudes towards the being who we think we are. The being who we think we are. Yeah. He goes on, you know, all the words, if you probably noticed, that he's using around the notion of self, agitation, palpitation, delirium. Yeah. This again is throwing up fantasies, just like a delirious, um, like just being in a fever. We throw up fantasies about who we are and what we are and grasp after them as being ourself. Those fantasies are often encapsulated in narratives, very sometimes very sad narratives, very sad stories that we tell ourselves about ourselves. You know, going back to Jeanette Winterson, it could be the, the, the narrative about the happy childhood, but we often tell ourselves the narrative about the unhappy childhood. Whereas actually, it's probably somewhere in between. You know, in the most cases, I'm not saying all, but in the most cases, it's probably somewhere in between those two narratives that we tell ourselves. The self itself is a mere narrative. Again, referring to another one of her novels, which is a wonderful book, you know, which I'd really recommend, called The Passion, if none of you have ever read it, which is a magical realist story. Um, and women do all sorts of strange things. Women have webbed feet and they walk on water and things like this. And all these weird things are happening. But it has this little refrain running through it, which I think could be true of the narratives around the self. It goes, trust me, I'm telling you stories. <laughs> yeah. 
That's actually often what's happening around this notion of the self. Trust me, I'm telling you stories. It's almost because this is what I'm thinking about myself. It has to be true. It has to be true. This, of course, is all what we're, in a sense, deconstructing. When we're deconstructing actually in a very, very gentle way in meditative practices, the narratives of the self. The narratives of identity, and particularly the narratives of suffering. The narratives which are often there encapsulated around that second arrow. About who I am, what I am, how I suffer, what is going on for me. And so we're starting to puncture those, puncture those narratives, see and hold them in different ways. And so in the end, it becomes not a question of whether there is a self or there isn't a self, but how do we hold this process who we happen to just call ourselves? Because we're not going to get rid of the language, are we? I mean, the Buddha doesn't go around dropping the first person. You know, every time he speaks, you know, he doesn't say, you know, one does. <laughs> you know, kind of the royal thing. Um, he doesn't drop out the first person pronoun in terms of his discourse or anything like that. What ceases to happen is he ceases to believe in it as a fixed entity. And this is what we're being asked, in a sense, to investigate, not to believe in, I really, really want to make this point. This is not a Buddhist doctrine of no or not self, and I would actually really make a strong plea to hear it as not self. What the Buddha is actually saying is, investigate what you will find that these things that we think are self are not self, in this sense of fixity. That everything we touch, everything we look at, is process. The wonderful thing is, instead of being a noun, you are a verb. (laughs) Be the verbs that you are. (laughs) And that is really the point of it, because we hold a process a lot more differently than we hold a thing, don't we? Yeah. We come into a relationship with a process in a different way than we come into the relationship with a thing. We can perhaps be a little bit more respectful. This is getting into an ethical side which we just simply haven't got time to go into. We can have a little bit more respect sometimes for processes, for the process that we are, the process that you are rather than the thing that can, that's in front of me that can be manipulated. Yeah? If I view you as a thing. Jean-Paul Sartre takes a very dim view of human relations. He thinks it's just a struggle between two individuals to gain the other's power, to gain the other's freedom, yeah? to capture that other's freedom. And how would you do that? The only way you could do that is by viewing the other as an object. Yeah? by viewing the other object. That's a very sad statement on human relations, if that's true. It's a very sad statement. But unfortunately, sometimes I do think it is true in a lot of human relations, where there actually is no relationship. There is no touching of two people whatsoever.
And so that gets into a whole ethical sphere of relations. So the notion of the self, rather than, I want to try and finish off on this, because I've got about three or four minutes left here. The notion of the self touches every part of our existence. <laughs> I mean, in a way, it's quite commonsensical, almost as commonsensical as thinking we are a self. You know, when we start talking about this notion of the self and the way that we hold it, it's, it's bound to touch every dimension of our experience. This is why the Buddha in the Satipatthana Sutta is saying to see the body as body, to see the mind as mind, to see Vedana as Vedana, to see feeling as feeling. In other words, not to insert narratives of self around things which are actually not self. He gives a very graphic image. I've kind of refrained from making lots of textual references, but he gives a very graphic image. He said the notion of a self is a bit like a post nailed into the ground in which a dog is tied to. And all the dog does is go round and round and round, this notion of the self. So actually, the notion of the self is fundamentally entrapping. It's that which entraps us. Yeah? It's not actually, in the Sartrean sense, of somebody else capturing our freedom. We've already imprisoned ourselves. You know? We put ourselves in a cage, and sometimes we glimpse through the cage bars freedom. Yeah. We might just see it through the cage bars, and this is the walls, the cage of the self, into which we insert ourselves in trying to become a something, a thing in this world, when we are much more open. The consciousness that we are, and that's not to deny it, is a change. It's moving, it's changing, it can be. But it can be in whatever way you tend to develop it. Yeah. And that, actually, coming to the kind of conclusion of this talk, is what the Buddha is really speaking about, because we can take this malleable plastic self, you know, using terms that are often used about the brain, this malleable plastic self, and actually mould it in the shape of something which is potentially much more wholesome in this world, which actually is a vision of what human beings can be like in this world, as opposed to the many forms which it can take, which are somehow lesser than our potential that we possess. One final little thing, just to kind of lighten it up towards the end, because it's all been a bit heavy. I mean, I'll tell you this little thing. When, when I first studied in Tibetan monasteries, way back in the 70s, early 70s, um, I came across this thing, and many of you will have seen, it's, it's called the Tibetan Wheel of Life. Tibetan Wheel of Life. Um, it describes existence from a Buddhist perspective, but within it you have something which is known as the six realms of existence. Now, a lot of what I call ordinary lay Buddhists take this as being a description of reality, um, but it's actually meant to describe certain psychological states. And so we have six realms of existence, and one of them is a godlike realm, and that godlike realm is um, you know, it's full of everything people want. Um, they don't exist in it forever because even these beings are claimed to be reborn. I'm not, it's not an issue I want to get into, but you know, just psychologically they're reborn. But for the moment they're in that realm, which is quite a long time, it says, they have everything. And I love the description in some Tibetan texts. It says, when they're about to drop out of this realm into another realm, they start to smell and nobody wants to talk to them. 
That sounds quite a good metaphor for a lot of what goes on if you're falling out of a strata of social society, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You suddenly find out you haven't got many friends. Yeah. But there's this realm, which is this deva realm. It's a godlike realm where everybody has everything. And then there's a realm of those who want to be gods. So they're I was, the upwardly mobile. They're trying to get to where the gods are. And there's kind of, uh, there's a, in the imagery that's used, that, that has a, what's called a wish-fulfilling tree, which has its roots in this other realm, the, the aspiring gods, and all of its fruits in the realm of the gods. Yeah. So they're working really, really hard to become gods, but all the fruits are still going to the gods in this. Yeah. It's, I think it's very acute, the actual psychology here, yeah, there. Then there is a human realm, which I'll touch on and come back later. But in the bottom realms, then we have much more what's called um, unfortunate rebirths in certain realms. There's an animal realm, which is a realm of, of great persecution, um, blind instinct, you know, animalistic behavior, you know, um, mating and eating and excreting and all of this sort of stuff. I mean, remember, this is very ancient stuff, so I don't have a very highly deformed notion of animals. Um, but in that animal realm, there's just basic instincts being followed. And it's also a realm of great persecution. You've only got to think of the amount of animals that are killed each day to be eaten, let alone the ones that are eating each other yeah, as well. So it's a huge realm of great suffering and great persecution. And then there's these, I love these figures, they're called petas or pretas in Sanskrit, which are these little figures um, that have tiny pinhole mouths and little scraggy necks and enormous stomachs and an endless thirst and hunger. It's meant to actually epitomize desire that can never be fulfilled. Yeah. So in other words, everything you put in your mouth, because you can only put a tiny amount in, actually causes more suffering each time you do it. And finally, let me get to the end of this, finally there's a hell realm. And the hell realm here is that, again, it's very acute, the psychology of this, is nobody judges you in the hell realm. What the god of death does is he holds up a mirror to you and you judge yourself. And so whatever punishments there are meted out by yourself to yourself in that hell realm. And then there's a human realm, which is called the realm of the possibility of profound understanding, what's often referred to as wisdom and compassion. Yeah. And that's the human realm. And I've given a very short shrift to these, but I want to get to this point. This is where I was going. Because in a way, what's saying is this constitutes a self. These six psychological states, strangely enough. These six psychological states. And I got to talking with one particular Tibetan teacher I was working with at the time, and I said to him, is this what they are, psychological states, you know, kind of psychological stereotypes, you know, because I know people who are like godlike, god everything, and think they, you know, kind of rule the world, and I know those who are striving, and I certainly know people who are in the depths of depression, suffering hells, usually brought on by judging themselves in very unfortunate, hellish ways, and of course there's desire and people behaving animalistically, and is that what they are, psychological stereotypes, I said. And he said, no, that's a picture of yourself in one day. <laughs> but then he asked a very interesting question. He said, how often are you human in that day? How often are you human? Yeah. 
How often do you have that potentiality for real profound understanding and compassion in this world, in a day? Because a lot of the behaviors are driven by animalistic behaviors, hell realms, you know, psychological torture that we give ourselves often into you know, desire, which is endless and can never be fulfilled, and so on and so forth, through all of those realms. And every one of those realms has a narrative attached to it. You know, every one of those realms has a narrative. But how often can you be human in your day-to-day -day existence? In other words, fulfill your potentiality as a not-self when you cease to identify with those other realms. Yeah. I think I'll finish there. Again, I'll probably pick up themes of this in my last talk, which is, you know, luckily you've got Jenny tomorrow night rather than me intoning at you yet again. <laughs> so thank you for your attention. And, uh, yeah, thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.